Psalm 36, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. When he finds out his iniquity and uh, when he hates, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are great, are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of the pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There are there the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. Our... Uh, sermon today is Exodus 10. It's verses 1 through 11. It's the plague of locusts, part 1. All right, so we have Exodus 10. Now the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of what is left. What remains to you from the hail, and they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones who are going? And Moses said, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. At the time of Pharaoh, he was the leader of the greatest nation on earth, and he had complete control over the nation, which is something that he had inherited from a previous Pharaoh who listened to a wise young Hebrew man concerning a devastating famine which was coming upon his land. Since then, the Hebrew people had been a part of the population, and their efforts had continued to make that nation great, having built store cities for it and having remained productive members of the society even if they remained apart from them culturally. However, the dynasty of this pharaoh has become an enemy of the Hebrews instead of their ally. He's continually made decisions which have been harmful to them. In turn, he has only brought hardship on himself. Little by little, the power has been slipping away because of the devastations which the Lord has brought on him. Today, we will continue to see him go down this stubborn path, and eventually he will come to complete ruin. He has set himself against the Lord and against the Lord's people, banging his head against an unyielding wall. It is the mark of a true dolt, but it isn't uncommon in history, and it is no different than what's happening in the world today. Our text verse comes from Deuteronomy 32. It's verses 9 and 10. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness, he encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. 
Pharaoh is stubborn, and each time he sets himself against the word of the Lord, he only hurts himself and his own people more. If that doesn't sound like a perfect parallel of our nation today, you probably have not been paying attention. How we treat the Lord, how we treat the Lord's people, and how we respond to his judgments are all gauges of what the future holds for us. This is especially true with the leaders of a nation. They represent that nation, and therefore that nation will collectively suffer because of the leader's decision. Is it too late for our own land? Only time will tell. But we've been warned several times in the past 15 years. How many more warnings do we need? And when the tribulation period comes, and I think it's probably coming not too far away, it's only going to be worse. Locusts are coming upon Egypt, and they will be coming upon the world of the end times as well. This is what the Bible proclaims. And this is exactly what has happened and what will happen. It is as sure as his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is locusts to cover the face of the earth, which is verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Chapter 10 begins with the order for Moses to go in once again and confront Pharaoh. In this, he notes that I have hardened his heart. There are a few points of interest here. The first is that the I is emphatic. I have hardened his heart. Everything thus far has been orchestrated to harden Pharaoh's heart. And so the Lord can be said to harden Pharaoh, even though it has been done passively. And I'm going to spend time defending this today so that you understand it. It's certain that it is a passive rather than an active hardening because a different word was used than just one verse before. In the final two chapters, uh, verses of chapter 9, after the plague of hail was, uh, after that hail, plague of hail was complete, these words were given. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. The order of the words for harden in these three verses is chaved, chazak, and chaved. Verse 34 said that Pharaoh is the one who sinned, and he hardened his heart, and it used the word chaved. Then it said that his heart was hard using the word chazak. Now it says again that the Lord has hardened his heart, again using the word chaved. This might sound unimportant, but it is foundational in understanding what is happening and why these events have come about. We cannot impute wrongdoing to the Lord. It is Pharaoh who sinned. However, he sinned because of his own stubborn heart, which the Lord knew would harden through his promptings. Therefore, there is both a willful and intentional hardening of Pharaoh through arrogance and yet the behind-the-scenes hardening of the man by the Lord through the steadfast operation of his moral and just nature, which increasingly dulls him as well. As this increases, the natural result is that more and greater punishment will be inflicted with each occurrence. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a reflection of the state of the man as he either yields to or willingly hardens against the prompting of God, be it through nature or be it through his word. If we can cling to this when things go bad in our own lives, we can still proclaim with our lips, despite the trial, he is the Lord. I will be obedient and I will not withhold his praise from my lips. A close walk with the Lord and a good grounding in his word will keep us from all sorts of unnecessary trials, tribulations, and temptations which we face when the troubles are sure to come our way. Verse 1 continues, And the hearts of his servants. Now I just read you verse 934. I want to read it to you again. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. It noted the servants in that verse specifically. And now, because of their self-willed hardening, attention is again being brought on them in this first verse of chapter 10. In this case, the word is the same for both instances. Chaved. The action of the servants in verse 34 
934 that I just read you is ascribed to them. The action here in verse 1 is ascribed to the Lord, but the same word is used. The active actions of the Lord through the plagues have been used to harden the servants' hearts, and it worked. They actively hardened against the Lord, but even though the plagues were an act of the Lord, they were a passive action in relation to the servants. Now, this seems like hair-splitting, but it is not. Time and again, these words are being introduced to teach us fundamental truths concerning our relationship to our Creator and our responses to His active hand in the world around us. And so, in order for you all to get a clearer picture of what's going on here, we're going to remove ourselves from the plagues of Egypt for a second, and we're going to pretend that this is Florida that gets hit by a catastrophic tsunami. And I'm going to give you three different examples. The Lord does exactly the same thing, and yet there are three different responses. And that's what I'm trying to get you to learn and understand what's going on here. A staunch believer in the Lord will understand that God is sovereign. He will know that he is not immune from catastrophes of nature. If he survives and his entire family is lost, he will naturally be filled with grief, as anyone here would be. But he will not impute wrongdoing to the Lord. Mournful questions may arise, but they will be from the soft heart of faith. However, another affected person may have been a nominal Christian, or maybe somebody who never really considered himself in relation to his creator. He also loses his entire family, and his heart becomes hard towards God, rebellious and angry, even defiant. And let's introduce one more person. We'll call him Al. Al loses his family, but he sees the destruction as a perverse way that he can profit off of it. And so he willingly denies that there's any God at all through his actions. He begins a crusade to convince the world that the tsunami was the result of man-made global warming, which caused the waters to get so hot that they hiccuped, right? Each of these three has experienced the same calamity, and yet each has responded differently to it. As the Lord is ultimately in control of all events, the catastrophe was allowed by the Lord, and yet the response to him has had measurably different effects on those who were afflicted by it. Back to Pharaoh in Egypt. The Lord now once again explains the reason for what he is doing. Verse 1 going on, that I may show these signs of mine before him. The Lord is sovereign. He has an end purpose for every action that he takes or for every event that he allows to proceed unimpeded. There's no wrongdoing which can be imputed to him for these things. In the case of the plagues upon Egypt, it is so that he may show his signs before Pharaoh. The word for signs is a word we've seen several times already in these plagues. It's the word otot. It's the plural of ot, okay? A sign is given to show something else. They are miracles, but they also serve the purpose of revealing the glory of God, destroying the false objects of worship in Egypt, and showing pictures of future events in redemptive history. All of this and much more is tied up in the signs or the otot of the Lord. Verse 2, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things that I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Even more than what we've already noted is found here in verse 2. The signs have been given for the benefit of future generations to hear, to recall, and to remember the work of the Lord so that they will know, in fact, that he is Jehovah, the existent one. The word for tell here is the word safar. It indicates either to count or to recount or to relate. The recounting of what occurred in Egypt during these plagues became a standard among Israel, and it has been recounted year by year at the Passover consistently for over 3,500 years. The plagues are recounted in the Psalms as well, specifically in Psalm 78 and 105, among others. As Adam Clark comments on this verse, it was not to crush the poor worm Pharaoh that he wrought such mighty wonders, but to convince his enemies to the end of the world that no cunning or power can prevail against him and to show his followers that whosoever trusted in him should never be confounded. Kind of goes back to salvation by grace through faith, if you ask me. The words I have done in this verse are based on the verb alal. It is the first of 19 times that this word is going to be used in Scripture, and its specific meaning is to abuse. 
And this is why some versions, maybe one of them that you have in front of you right now, more poignantly translate this as dealt harshly or made a mockery towards those in Egypt instead of the New King James Version, which says, I have done. So if you have something a little harsher, it's because that word implies that. And this is the intent of the word Egypt. It isn't speaking of the land, but of the people of the land. This is evident from the plural pronoun, them, which is used. Further, the intended recipients of the knowledge which is being passed on concerning what occurs in Egypt are obscured in this translation. Let me read it again. It says, um, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your sons' sons the mighty things that I have done in Egypt. All right. It says that you may know that I am the Lord. Well, this makes it sound like the Lord is speaking to Moses because he's the only one that's been addressed so far. But the pronoun in Hebrew is plural. All of Israel will see the events. The events will also be recorded by Moses, who is the representative of all of Israel. And all of Israel of the future will receive the law from Moses. Thus, all Israel of all generations is who is being spoken to in this verse right here. And because the full revelation of God's word is included in the Christian Bible, the Lord is speaking directly to you and I as well. Any person, whether a believer or not, who hears and reads the words is expected to assimilate what is said and to respond by acknowledging him. Verse 3, So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. This is now the 19th time that the term Hebrew has been used in Scripture. That's also the sixth time that the Lord has been identified with the term in relation to them being his people. And finally, it is the last time, and I think this is important, that the term Hebrew is going to be used until after the exodus of the people from Egypt. The Lord has identified himself with them, and he is now speaking once again on their behalf for their release. Verse 3 continues, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. In verse 927, there was a brief moment when Pharaoh had clarity of thought. There he proclaimed this, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my, I, my people and I are wicked. Now just 11 verses later, he's being prepared for further chastening because of his refusal to truly submit and humble himself before the Lord. Though hardening of Pharaoh has been the intent in these events so far, the ultimate intent of the plagues is not to harden him, but to humble him. The word for to humble yourself is lanot. It means to abase oneself or to submit to another. Pharaoh has purposely refused to do this. Thus, the hardening is shown to be a purposeful response to the work of the Lord. If you wonder why someone you know refuses to call out to Jesus Christ for salvation, the exact same truth applies to them as that which applies to Pharaoh right here. They have willingly refused his calling. So much and I mean this sincerely, so much for the perverse doctrine of limited atonement, which is espoused by Calvinists. They say that Jesus Christ only died for a certain group of people, the elect, and not for all people. That is completely false. If you study the account of Pharaoh, you can see this is wrong. The only limit in atonement is what actually occurs among those who believe, not what is potentially offered to all people, all right? Jesus Christ died for everybody, every single person, but not all have received his offer. As the Geneva Bible notes about this, the purpose of affliction is that we humble ourselves with true repentance under the hand of God. Pharaoh has thus far failed to humble himself before the afflictions upon his kingdom. And many obdurate souls walking around the world today have likewise failed to humble themselves before the splendid majesty of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, or else if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. Plague 8 is announced. Like plagues 3 and 4, insects are being used to meet the Lord's purposes. Also, like plague 7, it is a direct attack against the Egyptian gods, Nut, the sky goddess, and Osiris, the gods of crops and fertility. These gods will be shown false, and the captors of Israel will be punished once again. In addition to this, the coming plague is a precursor to the fifth trumpet judgment upon the earth in the end times. Here's what Revelation chapter 9 says. It's 11 verses. Bear with me. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To, put, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. 
and he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke lo locusts came upon the earth and to them was given power and the scorpions of the earth have power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Horrifying, isn't it? What's coming on the earth? The shape of the locust, verse 7, was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and their stings were in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months, and they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek the name has Apollyon. Locusts are noted throughout all of the Old Testament as well, and they're especially highlighted in the book of Joel. Their Hebrew name is Arbe, but the root of the word is what gives substance to the name. Arbe comes from the Hebrew word Rava. It means to multiply. Thus, the very name locust implies astonishing numbers. In fact, in Joel 2, verse 25, the Lord calls them my great army. They're chosen now as an instrument of destruction from the heavens. And there's a reason for this, which is because of the previous plague of hail which was also from the heavens, and it had left some vegetation standing. The locusts are ordered to come and take care of all that is left. They are a consuming army which literally destroys the earth as they march forward in their ranks. They're used metaphorically for armies in the book of Joel chapter 2 because like real armies, they destroy every single thing in their path. In Joel, the destruction is described poetically. Here's what it says. A fire... Vowers before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Anything alive and green at their coming is left completely consumed as they depart. This is how they operate, and this is what is now promised to Pharaoh. Verse 5, And they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. Grace was given in the previous verse. In essence, if you will humble yourself and if you'll let my people go, no further harm will come upon you. Further grace was given by announcing that he had until the next day to comply. And grace is even given in the announcement of the type of plague that will come. Knowing in advance what would afflict Egypt was not necessary. But as with each of the previous plagues, it is announced so that Pharaoh could consider and amend his ways. If he chose not to do so, the extent of the plague is minutely described. Thus, it is one final note of grace before judgment comes. The antithesis is therefore given. Release my people who have built your land, or I will send my destroyers to destroy your land. And here is what it will be like. They shall cover the face of the earth. It's not what the Hebrew actually says. The Hebrew literally reads the eye of the earth. It's a phrase that's used only three times in the Bible, once here and twice speaking of the immense number of Israelites who were preparing to enter the promised land. We'll get to that in about 300 sermons from now. The plague of locusts would be so thick that the eye of the land would be darkened by them. The term is explained by the next words. No one will be able to see the earth. This is not an exaggeration either. Plagues of locusts have been noted many, many times in history with so many of them that they literally will cover the earth five or six inches deep and they cover a distance of up to a thousand square miles or more. Egypt will be so inundated with these locusts that Pharaoh is told that every green thing left alive would be completely consumed by them. One writer, a guy named Stuart Poole, notes that locusts suddenly appear in the cultivated land, coming from the desert in a column of great length. They fly across the country, darkening the skies as their compact ranks 
which are undisturbed by the constant attacks of kites, crows, and vultures, and making a strange whizzing sound like that of fire or many distant wheels. Where they alight, they devour every green thing, even stripping the trees of their leaves. Rewards are offered for their destruction, but no labor can seriously reduce their numbers. Verse 6, they shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians. I read for this sermon several eyewitness accounts of plagues of locusts, and some of them were almost horrifying. They not only would get into the houses, but they would be so thick that they would fly into the mouth of anyone trying to take a breath. It would be so dark that even candles or torches being lit would still be, it would still be dark in the house with them lit. People wrote of the locusts being so hungry that they would actually eat the leather and the wood left in the houses. Nothing is safe from their onslaught, and no matter how many they killed, it wouldn't be a tiny dent in those left behind. Joel 2 verse 9 describes such a locust plague. It says, they run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. Verse 6 going on, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Locusts are not indigenous to Egypt, but they have been known to afflict them many times. As the wind blows, it brings them in from other areas. Pharaoh would probably have been familiar with swarms of locusts, but now he is told more. The plague coming upon Egypt will be unlike any plague ever seen in the land. From the time of the first man walking upon earth until the rising of the sun on the next day, there will have been nothing like it ever. Whatever Pharaoh imagined would be less than what would come about. The weight of the plague would be utterly, utterly immense. And with that final note, Moses stepped out of Pharaoh's palace, leaving him to consider what he had been told. You're a stubborn one, Pharaoh, but you will yield. I will continue to come against you until you do. Next up is locusts to cover Egypt, including every field. And they will be so thick, they'll come into your houses too. Nothing green will be left unless you humble your heart and let my people go to serve me. This advanced warning I do to you in part, but I'm sure that you haven't yet begun to see. You're a stubborn one, Pharaoh, but you will yield. Eventually, I know that you will let Israel go. My word has been spoken and it is sealed. What I have said will come about even so. Our second thought today is let the men go, verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, then Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Verse 7 now initiates a new phase in the events of the plague. Up until now, nobody has been recorded as giving Pharaoh any advice at all. But now that changes. In Exodus 8, verse 19, the magicians acknowledged the plague of lice, saying it was the finger of God. In Exodus 9, verse 20, it says that certain people feared the word of the Lord, and they acted upon it. Now, Pharaoh's own servants have accepted that the words of Moses are, in fact, true. They fully believe that what he says will come about. Thus, they have acknowledged the power behind the words, Yehovah. The question in Hebrew, though, is different than it reads in the English. In the English, it says, how long shall this man be a snare to us? That's not what it says in Hebrew. It says, until when shall this be unto us a snare? There's no noun for man here. And so it could be talking about Moses. It could be talking about the situation of the plagues the reason for the plagues, which is keeping Israel, or it could be talking about the entire scenario as one giant catastrophe. I'd prefer the last option. This is referring to the whole shebang. This is the first of 27 times that the word mokesh, or snare, is used in the Bible. The word literally means a snare, such as for catching animals, but it is as often as not used figuratively to indicate something that will lead to destruction. The next time that this word is going to be used is in Exodus 23 when describing the inhabitants of the promised land. There it says this, For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare, mokesh, to you. The snare at the time that I just read you is referring to the inhabitants of the land making a covenant with them and or their gods and serving their gods. 
This is exactly how Israel is now perceived to the Egyptians. Everything about them is a snare that will end in their destruction. It's the whole shebang. Verse 7 continues, Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. From time to time, I try to let you uh, remember this. This is an important precept. The Lord, the words the Lord mean literally Yehovah. It is a pronoun indicating his name, okay? It's not a title. We say the Lord, and it makes it sound like it's a title. It's actually his name. And I like to remind you of that because you can kind of get off on it, and it changes the intent in your mind of what's being said. The force of what the servants of Pharaoh say here is lost if you don't understand that. They actually say, let the men go that they may serve Yehovah, their God. They are acknowledging right here now that Yehovah is the God of the Hebrews and that he is to be served just as Pharaoh would serve his own gods. And so they make a recommendation. Let the men go. It does not say let the people go. So if your translation says that, it's not correct. A different word here is used, ish, than in verse 11, which is coming for the word man. And so some scholars try to say that the term men is inclusive of all of the people. However, there are 2,006 uses of this word ish for man in the Old Testament, and I went through all of them, or 99% of them, and not one of them was found translated any other way than man. All right? The servants are merely asking for the men to leave to serve Jehovah. It then implies that they would be returning after their time of worship was completed. And this is certain because otherwise the rest of the account really makes no sense. So once again, if your Bible says people, it is not correct. Verse 7 continues. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? The words here are in the past tense. Egypt is destroyed. And yet it isn't destroyed yet. There is in this a sense of fear in the servants concerning the finality of the coming plague for their land and their fortunes. They're not so much guided by their love of Israel as they are by the horror that continued resistance will bring about. Verse 8, So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? Obviously, the consultation had a partial effect on Pharaoh because Moses and Aaron are brought again into his presence with the grant that they may in fact go serve Jehovah their God. But even before acceptance is made, an implied qualification is added into the mix. The Hebrew provides a wonderfully poetic, literal translation into English. Here's what it says first in Hebrew. Mi vami hacholechem. Who and who will go with you? The repetition is a way of asking for a complete description of who is intended to join in the trip in the wilderness. The counselors had gone so far as to recommend that the men leave. And so Pharaoh asks his question, implying that not everyone will actually be allowed to go. He knew from the plague of frogs that the people were to go. But now he wants the ambiguity of that statement removed and a firm answer of who is entailed in the term the people. And so Moses now tells him, verse 9, And Moses said, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. The designations given by Moses are all-encompassing. There is no more ambiguity in what's demanded. The first designation is our young and our old. These are males. The elders would be in superintendence over the affairs of the feast, and the younger would be instructed in the method of the feast for the future. The sons and daughters mean that the entire household would be included. Obviously, if the children went, their mothers would be with them. Their flocks and herds meant not an animal would be left because they were to be the offering to the Lord. Whatever was determined was to be offered. To leave any behind would also mean that they would be susceptible to what? Theft by the Egyptians. Everything would go. The entire company of Israel was to participate without any exception. But according to the ancient writer Herodotus, this was the custom of the Egyptians as well. The entire family was included in their six annual feasts. And because of this, Moses was not asking for anything that wasn't beyond what Egypt already had instilled in their own rites and feasts. It needs to be noted that in just a short time, Israel is going to observe the Passover. We've got about eight more sermons and we're going to be there. Okay, When they observe it, we have to consider that there are 603,550 fighting-aged men who are going to depart. 
And that would be an immense number of lambs if there's a lamb for each household, all right? And then after, at the time of the Exodus, which is after the Passover, a very large number of flocks and herds are mentioned going out with the people, all right? Thus, there would have been millions, millions of animals ready to head out of Egypt and from under his grasp, he's not going to be pleased with this thought. I'm not keen on seeing Egypt ruined even more. And so now I will consider letting you go. You may leave to serve Jehovah, that's for sure. But who and who will go with you? This I want to know. I'm a generous guy and I'm sure we can agree. You'll get your request granted and off you'll go. I hope it's a grand time and a super festive party. But who and who will go with you? This I need to know. Everyone will go. This you must know, dear Pharaoh. The whole group of people known as Israel. And all our flocks will go too. That is who and who will go. So you know. You have asked, and now my words do tell. Our third thought, it looks like tomorrow will be a bad day for Egypt. Verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, then he said to them, the Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. All of verse 10, all of it is debatable in its intended meaning. The first portion is obscure. Some look at it as a curse. Some look at it as a statement of mockery. Either way, because he's already credited Jehovah with the preceding plagues, what's he doing? He's blaspheming him now. The same God who has wrought all of this destruction is being challenged in his demand for service and who the participants of the service will be. His words now all but call out for the plague of locusts to come. Verse 10 going on, beware for evil is ahead of you. The second half of the verse is also very difficult to interpret. It says, ki ra'ah neged penechem. Indeed, evil is before your faces. It is either a threat such as if you try to leave as you've demanded, you will certainly find evil in the punishment that you receive, or it's an indictment on their character. Something like, I can tell that your heart has been on evil because your face reflects it quite clearly. Either way, doesn't really matter. Albert Barnes sums up the thought very nicely. He says, great as the possible infliction might be, Pharaoh held it to be a less evil than the loss of so large a population. In other words, if letting all of you go is the price of not being plagued, then bring on the plague because you all are not going. Verse 11, not so, go now you who are men and serve the Lord for that is what you desired. His words here drip with irony because he knows that Moses won't flinch and his mind is made up as well. The war of ego is all he can think about at this point. Instead, he tells them that the men can go, but he uses a different word for man. It is the word geber, which implies an adult male. It comes from the verb gabar, which means mighty. All right, so you think of a mighty, you're thinking of an adult man. It is being used by him as an antithesis to the word for man, ish, which was used in verse 7. Further, he's inserting it into Moses' mouth because this word has never, ever been used during the entire dialogue. Regardless of what he may have thought that Moses meant, it is not what Moses meant. Along with all of this, there's one more point of irony, which is the words, go now. He's falsely implying that the mighty men may go, but he actually means that these two heroes who are standing right there in front of him are to be excused, as we see in the final portion of the verse. Verse 11 finishes with, and they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. This is an indignity that they hadn't yet suffered. The increasing anger and hardening of Pharaoh has become an almost torrent of rage. He's a troubled man who desperately wants to control the events around him, and yet he has absolutely no power to do so. And so he uses his anger to vent his frustrations and to subject his opponents to whatever disgrace is available to him. He just told them that evil was before their faces, and now the final words say that they have been driven from the face of Pharaoh. With this act, he has sealed the fate of Egypt to yet another plague. It is a hard painful road that this guy has chosen. But we too have made similar choices of our own. As a people, we elect leaders who we intuitively know will bring us temporary relief, but they're going to bring us long-term pain. As individuals, we may, may choose a sinful divorce for momentary pleasure in place of staying married and enduring through the times of difficulty, which will normally end with the times of great, great joy, right? As students, we may cheat instead of putting forth the effort to study. As employees, we may find ways of hiding our laziness 
in order to make the day go a little bit smoother. Whatever it is that is self-centered in our decision-making process, it is almost always the worst possible avenue to pursue. Pharaoh has not yet learned this, and it has cost him. It will continue to cost him until his kingdom is ruined, until his firstborn son is dead, and until he finally perishes beneath the waters of the Red Sea. Following the word of the Lord, being obedient to his commands and honoring him with our life and our actions is always the very best course to follow. And there is no greater truth than that which says we must belong to him in order to be able to please him. And the only way that we can come about pleasing him is by calling out to him for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation between the warring parties. If you've never called out to Jesus Christ, please give me just another minute to give you the simple gospel. The Bible says that all have sinned, all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible also says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin in our lives. Imagine an immortal being with sin, ever getting more wicked, more wicked, and more wicked. Think of the people before the flood that lived in 960 years, and the world was only 1,656 years old at the time that God decided, I have to destroy it because these people are living so long and they're so utterly wicked. Look at what Adolf Hitler did in just 40 or 50 years, the wickedness that we can make in just a short lifetime, right? The wages of sin is death. But there's a problem because there are two deaths in the Bible. There's physical death and there's spiritual death. Spiritual death came at the moment that Adam fell. We were separated from God and we are always separated from God. There is no point in our lives when we are connected to God. We're born in sin. And if we don't get that spiritual death fixed before the physical death comes, it will last for all of eternity. And so we have to make our choice now to call on Jesus who came under the law. He came without sin of his own because he was born of God, not of a man. He didn't inherit Adam's sin. He was born in the womb of a mother. So he's fully human and he's also fully God. And he lived that perfect life under the law that you and I cannot live. And then he gave that life up as an exchange for what you and I have done wrong. Even if we've never really done anything wrong, it's enough to eternally separate us from God. And he took all of that, every little thing and every big thing that any human being has ever done in their entire life. And he has said, I will make it right. I will take your punishment. And it was all poured out on him. And if you just call to him and say, I want what you did for me, I know that I will be saved from God's wrath. Because it's either in Jesus Christ or it is in you. Those are the only two choices that God gives us. So please, if you've never taken the time to simply ask Christ to forgive you of your sins, do so today. Call out to him and ask him to just take away that guilt that you bear and you will be forgiven for all eternity. And then after that, I would ask each of you that have made that choice to go out and tell somebody. Tell the people of the world because they're in the same dire situation that you were a moment ago. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We don't just get redeemed and keep our mouths shut. We tell people about Jesus Christ and about the goodness that is found in him. Our closing verse today comes from Proverbs 21. It's the 29th verse. It says, a wicked man hardens his face, but as for the upright, he establishes his way. Good words. Next week is uh, Exodus 10. It's verses 12 through 20. Uh, it's a plague which the Lord is focused until it's through. It's the plague of locusts, part two. All right? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Okay, I got the same 11 verses that we just went through at the beginning of the sermon and then through the whole sermon. I got them for you one more time in a much more easy to understand format. Here we go. This is called Release or Locusts. Take your pick. Okay. Now the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may before him these signs of mine impart and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have in Egypt done. And my signs, which I have done among them by my word, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me in the manner I choose. 
Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, I will bring locusts into your territory tomorrow. And they shall cover the earth's face, so that no one will be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of what is left in this place, which remains to you from the hail, anything of worth. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field, anything that shows. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, all looking for what's green, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen. Since the day that they were on the earth to this day, and he turned and out from Pharaoh, he went away. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed from all this fuss? So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them in a matter unknowing, Go, serve the Lord your God, even so, who are the ones that will be going? And Moses said, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we will go, now you have been told. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. This is the command of his spoken word. Then he said to them, As we now know, the Lord had better be with you. When I let you and your little ones go, beware, for evil is ahead of you. It's true. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence there and then. These are the things which have transpired. Pharaoh is a tough nut to crack, as we see. He is stubborn to the point of foolishness and ruin. But how often is the same true with you and me, when we let our emotions become our own undoing? Let's choose a better path and be obedient to the Lord. Let's willingly follow Jesus in this life we live. Together, let us follow the precepts laid out in his word and all our praise and worship to him let us give. May peace reign in our hearts, each of us. May our lives be suitable offerings to God. Every moment, let us pursue the Lord Jesus and find contentment on the hallowed path we trod. All our praise we offer to you, O Lord Jesus. You are our rock, our light, and the guide for each of us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us these truths that are in your word, that you do give us chances and plenty of chances to make the right choices. Thank you for the grace of keeping us alive each day until that day when we called on you as Lord and Savior. And I would pray for those that are in our families, that are in our lives that we love, that are not yet saved, that you would do a move upon their heart and soften it. Go in there and uh, uh, do something with uh, your great acts that will open up their eyes to see their need for you. Lord, this is something that burdens each one of us in some way, I know. There are people around us that we just love so desperately that we just struggle knowing that they haven't yet called on you. Give us comfort in that affliction and give them wisdom to make the right decision also. Lord, we pray for all of the people that are traveling today. Darla, who's coming back from Key West, and we've got the Bridges, who were up in North Carolina safely now. We pray for them. And Paul and Elaine, who are traveling. We pray for uh, uh, Pat, her arm, which is giving her great trouble this morning. We pray that you would be with her through that. And thank you for sending her daughter to help her as well. And Lord, for the people that are online that are watching as well, we thank you for their presence with us and the fact that we can share in life with them, even though we're maybe many, many miles apart. Thank you for that wonderful gift, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you for all you've done in our life. And we could never praise you enough for it. How great you are, oh God. Thank you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we get the uh, instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, which is the way it should be. You know, I've been in a lot of uh, uh, communions and Lord's Suppers and the like, and uh, some of them don't even use bread and wine. They just have a meal, and they call it the Lord's Supper. And uh, uh, others, you know, don't use the Bible. They get all kinds of catechisms and stuff. But Paul gave us the instructions, and why, why shouldn't we use the source? And so uh, here's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have given thanks over this bread with these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this, remembrance of me. 
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei pori hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread of the, this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Lord, I thank you for this church family. And it really feels like a family. Familiar faces, the smiles, the times when people are struggling and we feel their pain, whether it's physical or emotional. It is good to fellowship with other believers in this way. As your word says, how good and pleasing it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ which binds us together. And thank you for the sure promise of his return and may it be soon. Hallelujah. And amen.